Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, welcome to the show. Woo! It is all kicking off. .com. Now, exactly, I don't want to just force people to live through some pretty painful memories, but it is exactly two years since the Conservatives and the Boris Johnson won a whopping 80-seat majority, crushing the Labour Party in many seats and, of course, ending the Corbyn project. Now, why would I do this to you? To myself, let alone the rest of us. There is Boris Johnson with his wife, Carrie Johnson, celebrating the exit poll which for many of us was one of the worst moments in our entire lives. Now, two years on, exactly, Boris Johnson's premiership is in a state of complete and utter meltdown. Tory MPs are privately talking about removing the man who led their party into that crushing victory over the Labour Party. Now, as his premiership seemingly disintegrates, because of hostile links, leaks from within his own operation. It's important to note this, by the way, we'll talk about this. It's his own people here trying to destroy him. These leaks which are coming out willy-nilly are coming from within Boris Johnson's administration. Now, the Tories polling is in a state of meltdown. Let's look at a couple of the latest polls. Here's opinion. So the latest opinion poll for The Observer gives Labour their largest lead um, in any opinion poll since February 2014. That gives uh, the the Labour is on 41%, uh, up three. The Tories on 32%, down four. Let's have a look at what YouGov shows. YouGov has a similar lead, an eight-point lead for for Labour, up three. The Tories down one. So clearly, this is, I mean, this is a, a striking example. It's quite, I'm trying to think in modern political history, an example of a premiership, essentially in which the Prime Minister has got a massive can of petrol, poured it all over his premiership, and essentially set it on fire. Now, obviously, this the troubles, the later the, the crisis that's developing the Tories started with corruption scandals. They began uh, by essentially trying to defend Owen Paterson and rewrite the former Tory MP, the disgraced Tory MP. He's been forced to stand down, triggering a by-election, with the results, of course, in Shropshire on on Thursday, uh, they tried to protect him by rewriting the rules to protect him um, in that alleged uh, corruption scandal. Uh, Then the government was enveloped in a series of other corruption scandals. But of course, what really lit the touch paper was the fact that what came out after lots of murmurings about potential parties at number 10, uh, we saw, obviously, Allegra Stratton, his former spokesperson, laughing about the fact that they broke the rules, they had a party, whilst the hospitals of this country were being overwhelmed by the dead and the dying, and relatives could not hold the hands of their loved ones in their last moments as they died of COVID. Now, the latest we've got on the front page of the Mirror today, this is Boris Johnson hosting a 
a Christmas quiz in which he's not socially distancing. Oh, sorry, he, there's more. He's breaking allegedly the rules at the time because of the number of people um, in the room with him. The Tories are defending it on the basis of a Zoom call. People doing Zoom uh, Christmas quizzes. He's got to raise the morale of his own staff. We'll talk about that. But nonetheless, we know a series of Christmas parties took place in Number Ten, which broke the rules, as I've said. While Homeless people were being charged for breaking anti-lock uh, breaking lockdown rules, whilst a carer in Somerset was fined for having a sandwich in her car. Ordinary people hit by the state for failing to abide by the rules, whilst those who designed the rules were flagrantly breaking them. Now, today we're also talking about later on, we'll be joined by Paul Mason and Michael Walker to discuss. Uh, this crisis in great detail. We're also very lucky to be joined as well by Alva Rea, at the political correspondent at the New Statesman, uh, who will be talking about turmoil within the Tories. Beforehand, uh, we'll, we'll be talking very shortly to the brilliant Kit Yates, who will be telling us the latest on the Omicron crisis. How serious is it? How worried should we be? Are the restrictions currently sufficient? What likely restrictions are needed? Should we be optimistic? Is there cause for optimism? We'll talk about that. Right, let's go straight into this. Let's bring in uh, the brilliant Kit Yates uh, from the University of Bath. Hey, Kit, great to see you. Hey, How are you doing? Hey, man. Yeah, I'm all right. You okay? Not bad, not bad. I know you're recovering from a cold, which isn't COVID. Um, yeah, not COVID, just, uh, just a bad cold, I think, unfortunately. Okay, well, I hope, you, I hope you're feeling a, a little better. Let's just start. We, we heard a briefing from the UK Health Security Agency, Amal. Let's just hear what they said about Omicron. So I think firstly to say that we're still in the early days of understanding Omicron and how it affects people. Secondly, that clearly if you've had a prior infection or you've had vaccination, we would expect you to have less severe disease. However, the sheer weight of numbers that look like are coming towards us with the Omicron infection means that it will find those people who are, are unvaccinated vaccinated or who've had a poor response to the vaccine for their underlying immune condition. And that will still mean that we will still see individuals in hospital. Um, in the confirmed cases in the UK at the moment, um, uh, we've only had a very small number over the age of 70 who are the people we see with most severe disease in hospital. So I think it's early days for us to tell. Um, in South Africa, that even though they are reporting that there's a lot of mild disease and a lot of people are coming into hospital with COVID rather than because of COVID, it is still using a rapidly increasing number of beds over the last 10 days. So, Kit, come on, t tell us just a general overview. How serious is the situation with Omicron as you see it? Yeah, I think Susan Hopkins there is, is not wrong. Um, we're pretty confident that Omicron is significantly more transmissible. Um, uh, it certainly it has a growth advantage over Delta, whether that's because it's more transmissible or just because it's evading immunity, probably both of those things. Um, there are suggestions that it might be milder, although the evidence for that is not good at the moment. Um, we in the UK, there may be people getting it who are getting it more asymptomatically, but that could be confounded by the fact that we've got people who are vaccine vaccinating people who've got prior immunity. So it's really difficult to tease that out at the moment. And I think the really worrying thing is that with it doubling every two or three days at the moment, we're not quite seeing it in the overall case figures because it's starting from a low number, but we're going to start to see that soon. And even if it is slightly less mild, the sheer numbers of people that 
will end up getting infected if it continues to double at that rate have the potential to put hospitals under severe pressure and that's what the modeling is suggesting at the moment the sort of worst case scenarios they're coming out with it this is as virulent as delta is that we could be seeing 10,000 hospitalizations a day in january which is twice the amount that we saw last winter so you know potentially it's very serious but the, the jury's still out on the virulence at the moment so if we look for example let's south africa where we don't know of course whether or not omicron did originate in south africa though it certainly has ripped like wildfire over there but in terms of potential cause for optimism so in guantang province where omicron has run rampant the wave has lower rates of hospitalization um for those who are listening i've we've got a graph here from the Financial Times. And it, what it says is it shows lower rates of hospitalization and death compared to past waves and a sign that immunity may be protecting from severe disease. So what, what this shows compared to previous strains of um, COVID-19, potentially as things stand, is even though there's evidence that suggests the cases are peaking there, we haven't seen a surge in death. And in South Africa, even though, I mean... It should be noted, South Africa's excess death toll is actually disastrous. I mean, their reported deaths are bad enough, um, but their excess death toll is around 200,000. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite terrible. Um, so we know that despite vaccination being much lower than, say, Britain, there is obviously existing, uh, you know, immunity amongst the population. But as well as that, let's just, on, on, on South Africa, so there was a thread as well by Shabir Muddy. And he says, death rate is very low compared to period of the same case rate in previous weeks. Trend over next week will be informative, but optimistic likely to surge. Study in South Africa and elsewhere confirmed Omicron uh, five-fold five more um, antibody evasive than beta. I don't know. I mean, like, is there just cause for optimism here? Because we've had, look, Omicron invaded our lives about two weeks ago, so we don't know, obviously, a huge amount yet still. But there is data suggest some optimism, surely. I think we I think we can be cautiously optimistic, but I, I keep seeing this. There have been no recorded Omicron deaths in South Africa. And that's because largely at the moment, they just haven't there are deaths, they are increasing. You could see that from the graph, but perhaps they just haven't been linked genomically to to Omicron. But we are seeing in the regions that had Omicron first, we are starting to see the number of deaths uptick there unfortunately again in the uk where you know we we have excellent surveillance in the uk we're very fortunate on that front we we haven't seen huge rises in in deaths linked to omicron yet but of course deaths are a, a significant lagging indicator it takes between two and three weeks for people who get ill with covid to then go on uh, and die if they're going to die so really the 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 data is a little bit early at the moment for us to be say to to say and of course the precautionary principle that scientists tend to use suggests it's better to be overcautious now against something which turns out to be not as serious than to be undercautious against something which turns out to be just as virulent as the as the previous variant and and then potentially get into a situation where hospitals are getting overwhelmed so i uh, i'd say we should hope for the best but we should prepare for the worst in terms of because obviously people remember you know the nightmare at, from at christmas last last year and that's partly why the government now is enveloped in the crisis it is because people remember the utter misery of the last christmas which is probably the worst christmas well it was the worst christmas in britain since 1944 um, and they saw the fact that number 10 were living it up 
I don't know what they were up to doing the conga. But I mean, they were having a great time and millions of people were not having a great time. Myself included. Yeah. Um, so people are genuinely furious. So, but back then, those restrictions had massive public support, overwhelming public support, partly because people saw at least the light at the end of the tunnel. You put down restrictions. We've got a vaccine. It's going to be a long, hard slog. And it was. It was. January and February were shit as well, let's be honest. But vaccination meant a way out. And now we've gone through mass vaccination and people will look at the prospect of the restrictions potentially ruining Christmas again and think, I just cannot talk, you know, when will this ever end? So I guess my question is, are the restrictions at the moment sufficient? And if not, what sort of restrictions do you think could be imposed? And given the anger at the government, given their own failure to abide by the rules last year, and frankly, people are tired, do you think any further restrictions are, are viable? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I think we, I'm obviously absolutely furious with the government for for what they've done for gaslighting us, for telling us to do one thing and then doing the other. Uh, you know, yeah, didn't see my dad for for eighteen months to to keep him safe, and and we we abided by all these rules, and it turned out they weren't. And the 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 gut instinct is to say, you know what screw you Boris Johnson I'm not going to stick to any rules that you make but actually when you think about it you're not you're not screwing Boris Johnson over by doing that who you're screwing over is your mates and your family and your grandma and your granddad who potentially the people that you might give COVID to and I think that the British public are intelligent people and they understand that and so I think they will tolerate undergoing more restrictions in order to in order to make sure that we we keep death rates low to keep hospitalization rates low to look after each other in terms of are we doing enough at the moment no i don't think the restrictions at the moment or the the mitigations that have been put in place at the moment are enough to to stop omicron spreading there may be enough to buy us a bit more time um but i think we could be doing more and actually to some degree it is about buying time because it seems that the, the the booster dose of the vaccine, independent of which jabs you've had for the first two doses, the booster is actually pretty effective at stopping um, you getting infected, at stopping symptomatic disease. So get, getting people boosted is is really important. Actually, boosters for 30 to 40 year olds, which is, which is my age category and I think yours, just came online yesterday. So go out if you're between 30 and 40 and book your booster as soon as you can, because it will make a difference to how much protection you have against Omicron. That said, the things that we could be doing a little bit more of, I think, in order to try and slow the spread to give us more time to, to put boosters in place are things like trying to avoid non-essential social contact. So do you really need to go to that Christmas party? I know that that's really difficult because we all want to celebrate. It's a really difficult time of year to have restrictions because shops need people to go shopping for, you know, to keep them going. Everyone wants to have, you know, a good time because we haven't had that Christmas last year. But it is really important to think about, do you really need to, to have that social contact? Think about doing lateral flow tests. We should perhaps be introducing and making it mandatory for people to do lateral flows before they go into indoor public spaces or mass events. And even if you're just going to see your mates, think about doing a lateral flow test before you go to the pub or before you go and see your friends when you're meeting indoors. And just, you know, they're not perfect, but they will catch positive cases. We should be thinking about requiring masks in all indoor public spaces or mass events. So no exemptions for singing, which is absolutely a sort of crazy idea because singing generates the aerosols which spread COVID. So no exemptions for that. 
um, and thinking about bringing back self-isolation, not just for positive cases, but also for their close contacts and providing support, which is something we've always been banging on about since the start of pandemic, bringing in support to help people to self-isolate so they don't have to make those difficult choices about whether they go to work um, uh, and infect their colleagues or whether they, they try and put food on the table. Um, so those are just some of the things we could be doing in the short term. And I've got a whole load of medium term things we could be doing as well, like looking after schools better, improving ventilation. But they will have a they'll only have an impact over the longer term. But you know, really, we should have been doing those months and months ago. Yeah. I mean, just lastly, I mean, firstly, very important on the boosters. I booked my booster yesterday as a geriatric millennial. Yeah. 37 years old. I am now. I mean, technically, it wasn't supposed to be eligible till Monday. But the website, right. people go to the website, it still says if you're between 30 and 39 it's not online yet, but actually, if you click it, it does let you book your booster. Right. So people get, go go and go and do that. Yeah, I suppose what I mean a lot. I'm interested there that a lot, a lot of what you said was actually kind of individual behavioural changes you're you're suggesting, which are obviously great ideas. And um, what I'm, you know, a lot of people I suppose are, are worried about. I mean, it, it could be necessary. That's what I'm wondering. You know, things like the rule of six could that end up coming back by Christmas? Because obviously. You know, scientists have suggested that urgent action needs to be taken by the 18th of December to prevent a surge which could imperil the National Health Service. We've had Neil Ferguson talking about um, restrictions being imposed. If not this Christmas, could January basically be a write-off? Are we seeing, is it possible at the very least clubs could close? What's going to happen, do you think, to pubs, bars, that kind of thing? Do you expect those restrictions and on, on, do you think we need them? I mean, firstly, if restrictions are needed on the 18th of December, they're needed now. You know, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to say in one week's time we're going to get to the stage where we need more restrictions. You know, we need we need to put them in place now. The, the lesson we should have learned throughout this pandemic is that early action is always better than leaving it late. In terms of what those things might be, um, yeah, it, it's possible that we might need to be more restrictive than than some of those things that that I've suggested. Um, I'm hopeful that that we won't, but Omicron is incredibly transmissible and, and trying to keep it under control is going to be really difficult. The annoying thing is, though, that we should have been doing things to, to mitigate the possibility of transmission ages and ages ago. Like, we've left our schools almost completely unprotected. Um, school children between 5 and 12 aren't offered the vaccine yet. Even between 12 and 15, we've really made a mess of rolling out the vaccination programme. We're not putting ventilation in schools. We're not putting air filters in schools. The, you know, schools are a, are a hub of transmission and we should be doing more to protect our kids. Um, we should, I think, also be thinking about in incorporating ventilation into, into public spaces and providing uh, a way to help people breathe clean air. And I think, um, you know, we've talked about the red travel list a lot. It doesn't really make sense to have this red travel list when you're not doing enough in your own country to slow down spread when the number of new cases that you're facilitating in your country is more than the number of cases that are imported. So I think we should be replacing that red travel list with um, an agreed um, list of, of, of post, post travel and pre travel testing and supported quarantine so that we can keep an eye on what's going on uh, in the border. So, yeah, there's lots of stuff that we should have been doing. That's the, the annoying thing is scientists like me get called in to say, what should we, what should we be doing now that we're at crisis point? And the annoying thing is, is, is that actually we could have been doing so much more before now to stop yeah. us getting to this crisis point. But yeah, unfortunately, we end up having to be the bad guys and saying, yeah, you know what, you do need to take these draconian measures because we've left it so late. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that 
small small adjustments might make a difference and give us longer. But certainly to get on top of it, we might need more heavy-handed, unfortunately, mitigations. Yeah, I'm glad you emphasised ventilation. It's perennial frustration throughout this whole pandemic that actually, as important as people should wash their hands, ventilation actually should rank even higher given yeah, the transmission absolutely. we know in schools, workplaces and so on. Kit, that was really, really, really brilliant stuff. Really, really useful. Very comprehensive. Really appreciate it. I hope you're feeling better with your cold. Lot those they are nasty little buggers going around at the moment. Yeah, um yeah. but take care of yourself and yeah. um I'll speak to you. Yeah, happy Christmas, cheers. Happy Christmas, buddy. Happy Christmas. <laughs> um we're very lucky now to have the brilliant Alva from the New Statesman. Hey Alva, how you doing? Hello. That's very kind of you, Owen. You are really genuinely, for those who aren't aware of Alva, let me sort yourselves out, but just consistently fascinating and very insightful coverage. Important we you pronounce her name correctly has her twitter handle mm-hmm. demands all of this this is do. my real life's work owen to promote <laughs> the correct pronunciation of a-i-l-b-h-e but you've got how, often, spot on. how often does it come up every every is it like a once a day problem yeah quite quite literally like every day often because so, even anytime i step into an uber they're like alby and i say alva <laughs> <laughs> literally all the time yeah um well I'm glad I managed to, pronounce, I mean, anyone who obviously follows Alva and her Twitter now, uh, name is pronounced Alva doesn't really have an excuse. Let's just stop, right, Alva, okay, how serious do you think this is? Let's think back to Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher won three massive victories, including two landslide victories. She crushed the post-war consensus. She crushed the Labour movement. She remoulded the Labour Party and forced them to accept the underlying underpinnings of much of what she did. Three years after her 1987 landslide, she was out. She was turfed out because Tory MPs decided to be brutal. However grateful we are for what you've done, you're a liability. Two yeah. years after, to the day that Boris Johnson secured the 80-seat majority, do you think Tory MPs are getting to the point that they're going to remove him? I think no one's really sure. I think anyone who told you that this is definitely the end for him, you know, wouldn't, you know, I think that I think that wouldn't be being said with much authority. I think actually, like, the, the tricky thing for people covering this as well as Tory MPs themselves is that like no one really knows because on the one hand this has been you know a very bad few weeks for Boris Johnson personally and for the for the broader government after quite a bad few months as well you know that we've actually had months of scandals um you know and you know so many u-turns there is a real sense among Tory MPs that um that they they get sent out to bat for him they get sent out to you know even on on things you know, a few months ago, quite regularly, even on the Owen Patterson thing, end up having to defend positions that Boris Johnson has taken only to have to U-turn on them. They sort of are burning through their political capital with their constituents and sort of feel very worried about that. But at the same time, how much of this is really that different mm-hmm. to what voters knew about Boris Johnson when they elected him in 2019, honestly? And, um, you know, the the traits that we're seeing coming through, the things that, pe- that people are criticising in him, his complicated relationship with the truth for example that's actually all been there and so I think that those conversations are definitely happening the people canvassing support um there you know there are jitters I think you know there's a sense that this is the beginning of the end because people are talking about who might replace him or remove him uh, but it's not it's not as straightforward as um this definitely being the end for him because he is just seen by conservative MPs as such an electoral asset as as appealing to people that they can't otherwise appeal to I think they're really really nervous about swapping him for a sort of more conventional Tory I think that they 
they're still really sort of on the fence about it. And I think you can feel that sort of malaise among Conservative MPs at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that always reminds me back at the end of 2018, I was in the green room before some TV thing and a Tory MP was holding court saying we'll never allow Boris Johnson to become prime minister. Tory MPs will block him. He won't get into the final two. He's deceitful. He's unfit for high office. He's a charlatan. He's all these kinds of things. And then a few months later, I watched his video on Twitter um sycophantically endorsing Boris Johnson to be next Conservative leader. And that's the point. They knew what he was, but they saw him as the only viable antidote at the particular time. Yeah, this is the thing. This is how so many of them think of him. Like, definitely not all, but actually a lot of them. And even at Conservative Conference this year, because I hadn't, you know, none of us were able to go to conferences last year. So it's been, in 2019, he'd only just been elected and we hadn't had the election. But it was really interesting at Conservative Conference this year. I felt not just among ministers and MPEs but also just the membership this kind of this really strange transactional relationship that the Conservative Party has with Boris Johnson which we talk about all the time but it's only when you go to Tory conference and you know are in the bars talking to people that you really feel it that there's not really any love for him it's really like you know lots of people don't even feel like he shares their politics there are loads of Tories who you know don't like you know throwing money at, at infrastructure projects and don't like his approach to tax and spend but they just sort of feel like he's a winner and they want to keep him there. But I think, the, you know, he's never really had a, a base in the parliamentary party. It's not like there are Johnsonites who share his thinking on things and, and rally around him and sort of believe in his project. He doesn't even really have a project beyond himself. So it's really like it's just a transactional thing. He's a winner. So we back him. And I think they're all wondering whether there's another winner. Um, but they're really nervous about that. Before I ask you, I want to ask you about Labour, but in terms of just potential replacements for Boris Johnson. There's obviously the obvious Rishi Sunak. It's interesting. I know when I spoke to Starman's team about this last year, they thought he was a, he would be a different proposition from Boris Johnson in that he would appeal to socially liberal kind of voters in places like Putney or Canterbury, for example, but be more challenging in the Red Wall. So there's Rishi, I'll ask you about them. There's also another potential candidate. Let's have a little, little listen. The Cabinet Secretary is conducting a thorough investigation of those uh, events uh, that took place. But you'll appreciate that my focus has been on the very serious issues that we face globally, uh, namely uh, the specific issue that you raise of Russian aggression. Oh, posing as the statesperson. Now, Liz Truss Mm -hmm. is very famous for lots of people for being particularly angry about the amount of cheese we import, which she wants... Uh, said at Conservative Party Conference, this is a disgrace! And they, uh, it was biz- one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen in my life. But she is the darling of the Tory grassroots. The party membership love her, consistently ahead of the polling there. So I'm interested, what do you think about the likely chances of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss? And what, what, who is Liz Truss? What are the politics of Liz Truss? I think oh, Liz Truss is so interesting. I think we're in, in for a really interesting time in politics. Whatever you think of her politics, I think if if there were to be a leadership challenge, um, I don't think that, well, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think that neither Rishi Sunak nor Liz Truss would want to be the challengers. I think they would want someone else to be the person who went first so that they didn't look like the people wielding the sword, if, if that makes sense. But if there, if there were a leadership contest, and um, I mean, in a way it's unofficially begun with Rishi, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss both canvassing support already um you know taking back benches for dinner they have people who you know they have people who sort of support them 
quietly tapping up MPs to see if they'd be interested. It's kind of already begun, but I just think like Liz Truss is is so different to Boris Johnson in lots of ways because like this is a I think she's a very capable politician. He's a capable politician in a very different way. Um, she's a she's a really sort of you you mentioned that she's very popular with the Tory grassroots. She has cultivated that and courted that and really has to, has understood that electorate as it were it's a small electorate of mostly older white men but she really understands how to appeal there and has worked on that over years as you say she had a terrible time a few years ago delivering that kind of bizarre speech at Tory conference and she's sort of rebuilt her image since and has been sort of laying the groundwork for a leadership campaign for for ages basically and so she's very different from Boris Johnson in mainly that she has like very thought through politics she's a free market she's a free marketeer she I'm like and a sort of diehard liberal she used to be a liberal democrat actually not not that she likes to be reminded of that um and I think that if if she were to become leader it would be a completely different like the battlefield would change utterly because I think the challenge for Labour at the moment is dealing with uh, a government that doesn't necessarily believe in very much that is just sort of making the pragmatic promises and some of it is not super consistent um, and, and dealing with a slightly slippery character in Boris Johnson whereas Liz Truss really believes stuff and will make a case for it I think she's also a very I think she's a, a little bit like Boris Johnson in that she's quite a positive politician that there have been times when the Tory party has not been in a great place um, and you know, particularly under Theresa May, and she was the person who kind of um, embodied a sort of like embodied the Tory mojo for for more, for want of a better phrase. That she kind of kept the the grassroots feeling optimistic about their party and what it, what it stood for. And then she's done done this thing as she's not a foreign secretary, but as international trade secretary, she's just made this made you know striking deals her thing. Um, and it's really hammered home that message that she's, you know, signing trade deals left, right and centre. She's just seen as a, as a real deliverer and really and like, and quite competent. So I think that, you know, she has been, I think, planning a leadership challenge um, or has had leadership ambitions for far longer than Rishi Sunak. And she's more interesting than Rishi Sunak. She's sort of weirder. She's got really thought through politics. Um, she's a little bit unpredictable. I think that would, would just be for anyone who enjoys watching politics. Liz Truss is just an absolutely fascinating character. So as a Lib, Lib Dem, which she was, she apparently supported a motion abolishing the monarchy. She's gone on quite the journey, but she's a, mm. you're right, a very a free market believer, fundamentalist. Mm. Um, yeah, really but even on that, to be honest, Owen, like, I think that she maybe still, still privately wants that. You know, I think that those, in some ways, I think her values maybe haven't changed so much. Like, not that she's going to, you know, go and tell the Tory grassroots that she wants to abolish the monarchy. But I think that those are kind of her, her instincts. That's kind of what makes her quite an interesting politician. Yeah, she's kind of right-wing libertarian of a certain mm. stripe. Mm. Just finally, I just want to talk to you about Labour, just finally. I mean, under Keir Starmer, actually, Labour's polling has not been particularly good. Um, Labour lost, obviously, one seat. But, um, um, Hartlepool, that Labour get, kept, even in the Inferno 2019, nearly lost Batley and Spen. Council by-elections have not been good for Labour. His own personal ratings have generally been bad. And Labour's polling has lagged the Tories for long periods of time. Obviously now, Sarmacine can think, we've indicated, see, we're way ahead, nine points ahead. People like 
people like me who whinged about this, you've been proven wrong. What do you think about what do you think about Labour's surge and how optimistic or worried should they be? Not least if Boris Johnson is turfed overboard. What do you think? Kind of like is this because people forget Ed Miliband, of course, led almost every single poll from 2010 to 2015. It is the norm for oppositions to lead yeah. midterm, but that doesn't mean they naturally win. So how optimistic do you think Labour are about their chances? Do you think there's complacency? What do you think? I think that, well, I suppose the, the, the thing to say that no one no one in Labour really wants to be reminded of this midterm because you kind of have to believe that, that you're the next government and that you could win. But realistically, even if even if Labour did brilliantly at the, at the next election, they'd be unlikely to win uh, because like from 2019, there's just so, like such a mountain to climb to, to win a big enough swing and enough seats that you're re they're really, really unlikely to do that in one electoral cycle, even if everything goes to plan. In a way, this is a, this even if it was successful, it would take more than one term, probably. Um, so even though Labour doesn't go on about that and, and needs to put, put, I think everyone in Labour kind of puts that out of their mind because they need to at least believe in it. But that's the that's the fundamental reality. Um, as you said, it didn't didn't start super well. I think there was a honeymoon period for, for Keir Starmer, but then around things like the Hartlepool by-election, um, it, it sort of, it all um, fell apart slightly. I think that since then, a lot of changes have been made and they feel like they've become a bit more professional, the communications operation is better, they've made lots of changes. Um, but to be honest, um, from like lots of interesting conversations I've had with Labour people, they don't feel like they're doing well enough yet. I actually don't think that they're complacent about this. I'm sure they'll be pleased to see the, you know, the polling lead today. But I think they have a sense that, you know, these are dire circumstances for the government. Um, it's, you know, like failing midterm, crisis after crisis after crisis. And they still sort of feel like the they're doing fine, but um, it's hard to get their message out there, and they're still not quite owning it in the way that they would want to. Um, so because it, it looks ostensibly like a good time for Labour, but these are kind of ideal conditions, as you say. Um, a, a government struggling in midterm is not that unusual, um, but I think that there is a recognition of that within Labour that they sort of they still want to up their game even more and. I think for, for, you know, even if they seem confident right now, I think they're all thinking that they, they want to up their game more. Alva, thank you so much. That was really, really brilliant. Do follow Alva on Twitter, which is so easy to do because it's literally <laughs> pronounced Alva. That's all you just type in pronounced Alva and you found her. So. Oh, and you're too kind. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's a real honour, honestly. Uh, <laughs> been wanting to have you on for a very long time. Your, your writing is always so informative and incisive. So it's great to have you. Uh, lots of love. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, but thanks for joining thank us. Thank you. Uh, brilliant stuff. Now, we're very lucky to have two fantastic thinkers on the left, Navarra's Michael Walker, my compañero, and Paul Mason, a esteemed journalist who was, you know, let's not forget, he was in the heart of the beast. He was the BBC for ages. Channel 4, obviously written so many books, and everyone's familiar with his work. So it's great to see both of you. How are you both doing? Good. Very well. Nice to join you on a Sunday, Owen. I know it's lovely to have you here. Um, okay, let you know what I want to start with. The I think it's quite a basic question, but I'm quite, it's quite interesting. Let's just think about it because you know we can look at what has made us particularly angry about this government is its catastrophic handling of the pandemic, in which 150,000 people have died, huge amounts of social and economic dislocation because it was so badly handled. 
as well as the misery we've all we've all endured. Why has this particularly this issue of parties? That's what's caused the sudden collapse in polling. What has snapped in the British electorate so much over this specific issue? What do you think it is? Michael. <laughs> we, we were waiting on tenterhooks there. Um, I suppose, I mean, it's, it's, it's very visceral, isn't it? Especially after that video was out. I think it was, that was the real game changer when people saw how they were yeah. talking about this in, 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 you know, in Downing Street. And the big problem that, the Labour Party have had throughout this pandemic when they're sort of like, why aren't people blaming the government more? Is people have given them the benefit of the doubt. They've said it's a once in a generation pandemic. You have to be quite tuned into politics to be comparing how Britain is dealing with it compared to how Germany is dealing with it compared to how South Korea are dealing with it. You know, so it, I think people have given the government the benefit of the doubt because it's a once, once in a generation pandemic. But this, you can't give them the benefit of the doubt because it, it's it's such a clearly... Well, an unforced error is one way of putting it. You can also say, you know, an unforced slap in the face. And people feel that. And it, it is also a cumulative thing, right? So, so the parties just on their own. I mean, I think with that video, they would have been pretty, you know, pretty brutal anyway. But coming after the Owen Patterson event, it does seem like Boris Johnson has kind of no idea what he's doing. And everything he does seems to be a slap in the face of the public. So it's an additive thing. And yeah, the parties, obviously, because everyone had such a miserable time last winter. Like it, it, it is, you know, with the, with the pandemic, people say, oh, imagine being in charge of this. I don't know what I'd do better than the government. But we do know what we did last winter, which was that we didn't go to Christmas parties and it was all quite miserable. And they did. And then they lied to us about it. And and so it's just so hmm. I, I do think Boris Johnson will struggle, struggle to recover from this. Paul. Yeah, I think it's um, it's it's the sequence. You know, you had the Boris Johnson blatant lie in Parliament, that there was no party. And then the video comes out. And I think, um, and then he, then of course, he has to make an abject apology. Um, I know most people don't watch PMQs, they're not interested in it, but that video, um, and then, you know, it, it, and then the video gets amplified. I'm talking about the Allegra Stratton video, the leaked video. I mean, let's, you, you could do a whole kind of afternoon semiological analysis of this video. But what it basically tells you is that there's a bunch of quite young, um, quite posh, public school people with no accountability whatsoever who not only have you know are the people because Johnson doesn't run Downing Street in that sense these are the people who've mishandled the pandemic and they regard the public with total contempt I think that's the semiology that's the subtext of that video a posh woman regarding the public with total contempt uh, <laughs> while people's grandparents died alone on 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 hospital wards and I think that when she came out then, and I know Allegra, when she came out then, in abject, I mean, she was abjectly apologetic. She realised that that is exactly how it had played, that it had come across as if they were just making light of, of the mass death of our elderly relatives. Um, and I think if you look at the polls, I was listening to what Alva was saying earlier, all the caveats would go into them. But these polls are remarkable because how, of how rapid the turn around the same place. And we, I hope, as, as kind of, Marxists, three male Marxists, white, uh, on the on on this call. At least we understand that you know, public opinion does turn very rapidly. Uh, class consciousness emerges is very rapidly when when dramatic events take place. Um, so yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, interestingly, then you get Johnson railing about the BBC saying they're turning it into a Diana-style moment. Well, those of us who remember the Diana's Princess Diana's death and funeral. That was again a massive moment where the for example, the entire monarchy's future was at stake. 
So I think it's a big moment, but I'm not, you know, I mean, we, we can go into what Labour's doing wrong. But well, we'll come, yeah, we'll, we'll come on to Labour. I'm not, I'm not sort of a cock a hoop. I think it's a start. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about Labour just shortly. I, mean, I, I did forget, you just reminded me, I forgot Allegra Stratton was your colleague. I mean, literally your colleague. He's like, that's so funny. I'm sorry, it's just so ridiculous in so well, many different ways. She was a good journalist. And I think, you know, she, unlike many BBC producers who simply content to go into management, where all the, remember, that's where the power is. That's where the real decisions are made in broadcasting. She didn't. She, she worked away from Newsnight producer to Guardian political correspondent and then on-screen correspondent. Uh, and she is a kind of, the point is, you know, with, I don't want to get into sort of personal, you know, attacks on people, but the point about that circle that she is part of, you know, married to uh, James Forsyth, the political editor of the of the, tele, of the Spectator, that Spectator circle are the people who call the shots ideologically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they you know they despise people on benefits. They you know they think taxation is a scam. They all, all this stuff. You know, they're quite happy to have fascists writing in their newspaper. Um, Highly sceptical about the welfare state, um, hate Scotland. You know, even the ones who are Scots are not keen on Scotland. And that, that, what you got in that video was a sudden glimpse into that world. I mean, the guy who asked the question, Ed Oldfield, I mean, he's interesting. The male did a hit job on him. The male basically pointed out he's a public school kid who has failed at everything he's done. He's an executive for some firm owned by his dad. Suddenly, he's sitting in Downing Street, um, grilling. Stratton over this in this kind of hypothetical way that I'm afraid anybody who's watching it who doesn't know that is how the British elite think we've had a, a textbook glimpse into how they operate I mean the Allegra just quick I mean the Allegra Stratton being a good journalist is a heavy caveat because of course she should be most infamously known for uh demonizing a young single mum on benefits uh, who was trying? She tried to portray as a scrounger. Essentially, that was the fashionable view in the BBC at the time. Well, I, mean, I know, but she, you, you know, know, Newsnight actually were thought it was rare because they were forced like, to apologise because yeah. we spent there was years, of course, of benefit bashing, and you could say whatever you wanted about benefit claims and get away with it, and that caused huge misery because it justified the assault on the welfare state. But anyway, they had to apologise for that. Just let's let's just see this clip from because the the government are, are all over the all over the shop, obviously, at the moment, and in genuine crisis. Let's just see what Nadim Zari had to say when all of this was put to him. Job at a serious time for the nation. And actually, if you look at the hype that's been going on for two weeks yeah. around parties, I'd reverse the question and say, you know, let's are the media, you said earlier, before we went on air, you know, little things keep us busy in the media, right? Are, are you right. really getting the right balance here right. in terms of, in terms of, you know, Omicron is such an important variant that I have spent, to deal with we, I have spent, versus, versus talking about a Zoom call the, um, the, where, he's, where he was motivating his team we have spent, who had to work every day we, we, without we, having, to, you know, they can't, uh, they don't have the, the ability uh, to work from home. I've been counting. We spent the first 50 or 60% of this interview talking about Omicron. You did. So. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they don't really have a line to stick to here. They're all over the shop. They don't know what to say. I mean, Michael, you've already kind of partly answered this, but I'm interested. Do you genuinely think this is the end of Boris Johnson? It's two years to this day one of the worst days of all of our lives here when he won an 80 seat majority, the conservatives, a lot of them, they really do think he has a unique cut through with that particular slither of the electorate in marginal seats, the so-called red wall that they just don't think, or they're not sure that other conservative politicians like Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss would be able to cut through to those voters. That's what's keeping him in place. So do you think this man is often portrayed as the Teflon politician? Nothing sticks to him. Everything, it was one of the things that he's, done in, in his career would have destroyed any other politician. Is this genuinely, you think, finally the end of it? Well, it's not going to be the end of it because no one wants to take over right now. I mean, we're about to go into a new wave of coronavirus. There's potentially going to have to be you know, plan C, further restrictions. There is no conservative who, who wants to own this period in the crisis. So he's going to have until spring or summer at least to try and prove that actually he can change his his public image and he can get it together and, and seem like he has some sort of grip on what's going on in Downing Street. So I wouldn't write him off. At the same time, I think potentially the personal appeal of Boris Johnson can be slightly overstated. And what matters more is that he has been willing to put forward a politics and, and to talk in a way that some of the more ideological Tories are unwilling to do so. So, so if, if, for example, Rishi Sunak could offer the same sort of, of, of politics as, as, as Boris Johnson, so resist all the urges to start talking about the, the benefits of, of low taxation and the free market, which Boris Johnson doesn't really do, then I'm sure he could win those same seats, essentially. He also backed Brexit, by the way. So I think it's, it, it, it's, is there anyone else willing at the top of the Conservative Party to pitch themselves as, uh, oh, I don't want to use the phrase red Tory, but as a, as a sort of socially conservative, but economically, you know, somewhat egalitarian. I mean, this is all, obviously the Tory party aren't governing the, the country in an egalitarian way, but they're willing to talk that talk. Yeah. And I think that is that is what, why Boris Johnson has this unique appeal, because he's willing to do that. So if Richie Sunak, etc., could, you know, persuasively convince people that they could, and they'd be willing to put forward that kind of argument, I think they probably could win a similar set of seats to Boris Johnson. I mean, just, just on that, just on that, Paul, just before, you know, in terms of, I'm interested to know what you think about whether this is the end of Boris Johnson, but on Rishi Sunak, here's Starmer's team last year, certainly, as I said to Alva, they actually thought he's a completely different proposition. Michael's right. He voted for, he was a Brexiteer during the, uh, the referendum campaign. But as we found, a lot of liberal remainers are their politics is more of a vibe than anything else. Like a lot of them backed Rory Stewart for ages. Mm. He was a Brexiteer. Mm. And Rishi Sunak, they think, would cut through with kind of middle class, professional, liberalish voters in places like Putney and Canterbury, but not be such a good sell in the red wall. Liz Truss, again, because she's so ideologically free market, would she want to turn on the, t the spending taps to shore up? the new Conservative Electoral Coalition. So I guess I'm wondering, that's linked to whether Boris Johnson survives, because who do the Tories have where they think they can cut through in those particular areas in the way that Boris Johnson does? So do you think he's going to survive? And what do you think about the, the alternatives? Well, uh, I want to start from, rather from the personalities, just from the sort of political coalition of voters that has assembled around modern conservatism. And I mean, you can see uh, the problems for them. If you look at in sp specifically the YouGov poll, uh, which uh, which was for the Times, not the Observer one that we're all talking about. YouGov poll 
Greens on 7%, which is a problem for Labour, but Reform UK on 7%, uh, uh, which is a big problem for the Tories. Because what, what remember what Johnson did? There was UKIP on, at one point, 4 million votes. Bre and you know, the Brexit party reformed. Johnson went in and he brought all of that into the Conservative project. And he did so with the idea, the levelling up, the, the plebeian racism, the overt plebeian racism playing to the kind of words and sentiments that you do hear among among some people in 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 where I come from, Lee in Lancashire. And no, no, no other Tory chose to do that. No, you know, all the other Tories who were quite you know very hardline Brexiteers, they're not particularly popular. You know, uh, all these the kind of red faced kind of you know kind of right wing ERG types. They they don't have that because on the other side you've got the you know, both Sunak and Truss are orthodox Austerians. Uh, and they I, I don't think they can reinvent themselves as kind of, yeah, oh, your town needs a billion, uh, here's a billion, you, that's, which is what Johnson's currently forcing Sunak to do. So why we'd be worried about as the Tories is that, and I think we must, we on the left must understand this, what's driving these polls. About a quarter in the YouGov poll of 2019 Tories are don't knows. We're not seeing a mass switch from Conservative to Labour. We're seeing a big switch from 2019 Lib Dems to Labour, which does us no good whatsoever in, in, in real seats. Um, so you, the, that, that right-wing coalition is really perturbed by what's going to happen now because of Omicron. I, I, I've been covering, you know, um, so, so the, say the far-right demo in, in Austria uh, two weeks ago, there was a banner that I think sums up the views of right-wing people here as well. And it said... Control your borders, not your people. Uh, and so in the minds of the Tory sort of plebeian right, there's too much control coming over Omicron. They don't want another lockdown. They don't want vaccine passports. They don't want any more restrictions or masks. And there's not enough control of the border. And that's confusing them because Johnson's entire pitch was, you know, I'm a libertarian and I'm, you know, I'm going to shut the border down to, 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 to brown and Muslim people. So there's a huge con con confusion in the ranks of this this unstable coalition, and that's what I think will will drive Tory politics over the next few weeks. Now let, let's just have a look at Labour's response. So Keir Starmer was on the Andrew Marr show this morning. I think London was in tier two at the time, which said that nobody could be meeting for a non-work purpose more than I think two people in a room together. So yes. Given that, was he breaking the law? Well, it looks as though he was. Um, and um, he must have known those other groups were in other rooms in his own building. And, you know, this is very important because yeah. he's damaged his authority. He's now um, so weak, his party is so divided, he can't deliver the leadership that this country needs. And, that, and we've got a very important vote coming up mm. next week. Um, and he can't even discharge the basic functions of government. He's the worst possible leader at the worst possible time. And you've just said that he broke the law in Downing Street. Well, it appears. We'll have to look into it. Well, but it's very hard to see how that's I, compliant with the rules. Given that. So, I mean, look, I didn't vote for Keir Starmer. Michael didn't. Obviously, Paul did. Um, I've been... To, be, to say the least, very critical of Keir Starmer's leadership. Uh, when he started Labour Party conference by trying to stitch up the left, um, obviously he surrounded himself with very right-wing factional players. I'd say his shadow cabinet is now to the right of Tony Blair's first government cabinet. Uh, I, I said he should be removed and the left should try and remove him. Of course, now Starmer's 
most kind of big, most dedicated followers now, like in your face, humiliation, Labour have been, you know, the Starmer project's been vindicated, Labour way ahead of the polls. So I'm just interested in terms of Labour's response, but also do you think they should be so cock Let's start with you, Paul, because obviously you back Starmer. So what do you think given, you know, I mean, you know, I well, would argue the, the polling the, has nothing to do with anything Labour's yeah, done. The, the fact that I, I, backed him, I enjoy watching yeah. the Tories in chaos. Yeah, the fact that I backed him doesn't mean I supported him over the conference stuff or in no, I know, no, 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 I know, over the reshuffle. And I've been very critical of him on all my stuff in the last year, to be honest. Um, so, so the, the 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 question is, how much of this is to do with Labour? I'd say maybe a fifth of it, in that sense. Uh, because, as I said before, there's a lot of Lib Dem to, to Labour switching going on uh, inside these polls that people need to understand. Uh, I'd, I'd also say that um, but, you know, the one, I mean, the whole thing is self-inflicted by the Tories because they could have simply said, yeah, I'm sorry, we had a party and we're going to sack a few people and it's, in, on, in, you know, starting with Allegra and, and, you know, it's terrible and we're really sorry, but it wasn't going on everywhere, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is why they can't say that is because of the, the, the flat refurbishment issue. Because the flat refurbishment issue, in a way, is the more serious thing. This guy, Lord Guite, who's the, you know, integrity advisor is probably going to have to resign unless Boris Johnson admits he lied to him. Uh, so um, Johnson could end up in, in breach of the of, of the rules of the Nolan rules formally. And I, I think actually at that point, if Starmer doesn't call for him to resign, that's a huge mistake. But Labour should bank this. I mean, they should bank it. But the problem we've got is that even now, no, apart from honesty, integrity, and and you know some more lockdown rules, very few people understand what Labour stands for and empathise with it. And I don't know whether you know or, or Michael. You know, there's this Scouse folk singer, Jamie Webster. I don't know if you've seen the videos. He's going around Britain doing a, a tour, and at the tour, hundreds of white working class men turn up and they just chant "fuck the Tories." Um, like, where's that energy in politics? Where is it? Uh, and it's not going you know, through the old shadow cabinet, the new shadow cabinet, through the left and the PLP. Where is that energy? I want to see that energy. When we start telling that energy, I think we'll start bringing people over to labour, to, to an idea, not just to a kind of technocratic solution to the to Omicron. Well, I'm always up for fuck the Tories energy. Not in the literal sense, probably. No, Michael, exactly. Michael, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I agree with Paul that, you know, Labour doesn't have too much to do with this particular crisis. But I mean, at the same time, I, I think this is exactly the crisis that plays into Keir Starmer's only strength, really, which is, I mean, we know as people on the left of the Labour Party that he doesn't really care that much about rules and he was willing to screw us all over and lie. Um, but most of the public don't really care about that. And the guy who was director of public prosecutions, you know, he doesn't seem like the guy is going to hold a secret party and then laugh about it afterwards because he doesn't seem like a guy who has parties so uh, this, this this crisis maybe plays into his one strength which is that he seems fairly upright and kind of boring um so i i that's why i think you know at boris johnson in this form is is keir starmer's ideal opponent if yeah. he was replaced by rishi sunak someone who was more dynamic because keir starmer's big weakness is he's wooden and he doesn't stand for anything and and the only strategy labor have had is sit back don't be scary let the tories fuck up we're in a moment where people are so concentrated on the Tories fucking up that they're, you know, willing to consider the not scary Labour Party. When it gets to an election, you know, and, and, and policies are on the table, people will be reminded again that Keir Starmer was a massive Remainer, is really out of touch with people. 
there'll be debates where he looks incredibly awkward and wooden and people are just like, who is this guy? You know, by the time we get to an election, I, I doubt it's going to go too well. But but right now, this is the ideal moment for Keir Starmer when his few strengths really come to the fore, I think. In terms of the should he ask for Johnson to resign, it, to me, it's all a bit of a distraction. I, I think what Keir Starmer says at this point doesn't doesn't matter that much. Um, and I kind of understand why Keir Starmer doesn't want to interject himself into the news cycle. I think Paul's probably right. You know, if he gets found to have broken some code or whatever, at that point, he can call for him to resign. But right now, I've, I've got no real beef with how he's dealing with this particular controversy. In terms of, I mean, you know, we've talked, we spoke a lot about the Tories. I don't want people to say, oh, here we go again. You're going to pivot into criticising Labour when the Tories are in, a, in, in meltdown. But obviously, for those of us who actually genuinely just want the Conservatives to be removed from office, even if we're not necessarily best pleased with the current alternative, it's, people on the left often ridicule me because I'm, I'm such a ludicrous Labourite who joined the Labour Party age 15 when Blair was leader and have voted every single local and national election for the Labour Party under every leader. But nonetheless, you know, I think if you look back to New Labour in the 90s, whatever you think of Tony Blair, and we all have our opinions of him here, they 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 tore the Tories to pieces. You know, Alistair Campbell had a kind of how many Tories are we going to eat for breakfast? Everyone knows the famous Blair weak, weak, weak performance, or political geeks like us do anyway, certainly. Um, and, you know, John Major's Conservatives were terrified of New Labour. And... Even in 97, Labour did have cut-through policies, minimum wage, windfall tax on privatised utilities. I suspect that would be too left-wing for the current incarnation of the Labour Party. Social kind of liberal policies like gay rights, you know, devolution, I suppose, is a constitutional thing. They, I mean, that's the problem, isn't there? There's no, it's not only there's no clear vision, there's not even any, there's nothing to cut through with what Starmer's Labour's offering. So at the moment, by default, obviously they're gaining because the Tories have set themselves on fire. But that's the danger for Labour, isn't it? How could that lead for Labour last, not least if people move on from the scandal Boris Johnson's got rid of, you know, and, and there's no positive reason to vote Labour? What do you think, Paul? Well, I think that it's not only... I, I'm not satisfied with the policies they have. The, the, one, the one concrete thing, which is the $224 billion, Rachel Reeves promised to, to do something like the Green New Deal is, I think, something we can build on. But what I say to the left is what we've got to move on from is our critique up to now is you, you're not radical enough to, to, to excite people and to gain a lead in the polls. Well, for now, there is a late lead in the polls. And that kind of leads me to say what we should concentrate on is what does the left want from a Labour government? Uh, and, and for me, it is... Uh, it's, it's about carbon decarbonisation and it's about redistribution. And what I'd want to see the, the socialist campaign group now completely exiled from, from any idea of being on the front bench, out in the cold, apart from a few of them uh, who are PPSs, I'd say just come up with a united idea of what it is that you're going to use your votes in possibly a late, because I'm more optimistic than Alva Rea was. I, I, I think we'll see a, a, a Labour minority or government with the SNP giving supplying confidence. If, if it was an election tomorrow, I think we could do that. Then I think in that situation, what are you going to use those 33, 36 votes of the SCG to, to deliver? Uh, are you going to leave Starmer relying on Tory votes to do you know, bourgeois bullshit that, that they'll be pressuring to do? What are you going to do on migration? I, I, I want to see the left come up with its alternative. Um, 
And if you know, I mean, so it's that really, because it's the absence of the left having that means, of course, the center left and the soft left don't have any energy because, as you said, you know, they don't re it, their politics are a triangulation between the demands of neoliberalism and what the working class base of the party wants. So, we who I think do represent that, one final point I don't want to eat all your time language. Boris Johnson's great strength is his ability to use quite posh and obscure language to communicate with working class people. There are very few Labour front benches, even now, communicating with working class people in a language that they can understand. And that's not, there's no need for that. As you say, Blair did, Brown did, Prescott did. I can't understand why these guys will and, and women will not talk to people as they talk to each other. I do actually. I'm quite interested in that kind of hung parliament gameplay. So I will ask. I will ask about that because I'm. I'm interested in that in that particular scenario. Yeah, but Michael, do you, do you want to respond to that first? What's that? Sorry, what, what precise question am I responding to now? In terms just of, what Paul oh, yeah, said. Oh, well, just because like what the Paul S said, the SCG. Labour's lack of vision, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've kind of got to a point where I just feel like you know the the the, the Labour project right now is not really my project i think it makes sense to stay in the labor party and use your vote wisely but at the same time i don't think starmer gives a damn whether or not he gets the left on side before the next general election so i i wouldn't hold that much hope out in terms of you know coming up with a united left platform and then assuming that's going to have some influence i mean ultimately for 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 me right now the priority for the socialist campaign group and for left wingers in the labor party is to try and resist any kind of purge so either when Keir Starmer is replaced, or if, you know, by chance, he wins the next general election, they can have some influence. Because obviously, the Socialist Campaign Group are only going to have influence if there is a Labour government. Them sort of coming out now and putting forward all these radical policies that they're going to, you know, use their leverage to get Starmer to implement. I mean, that's just going to be used against the Labour. I feel like maybe keep your powder dry when it comes to policies and, and that kind of thing. I also think it is overstated the extent to which if Starmer came out of a bunch of, you know, policy platforms that would really help him in the polls i think mm. the issue is he's got no killer instinct and he's wooden so i feel like there, there are lots of people in the labor party even on the labor right who are preparing for the succession and the priority for the labor party shouldn't be to say oh maybe starmer will end up being our biden and he puts some left-wing you know policies on his platform and then we get into government and there's once again a healthy coalition between the center left and the left because that you know there's no indication whatsoever that that's going to happen and i think you should you know it, believe people when they show you who they are and he has done that so yeah i, I suppose to to summarize i said the, the priority for the labor left should be to hold their position within the party and that means keeping those mps in place it means trying to stop the outrageous and ridiculous purges that are going on in, in councils around the country where you've got good hard-working candidates who are being you know they're not even being deselected they're being blocked from restanding in their own seats because they happen to be left-wing because it's, mm. I, I think it's it's about defending space for me more than saying, oh, maybe Keir Starmer's going to be the guy who implements a Green New Deal. On on the, just on this, the, the reason I bring up the hung parliament, I just want to look forward to potential hung parliament that could, let's just say, it's a viable prospect now, at the very least. Even though oppositions tend to be ahead in midterm, that's actually the norm, and that does not normally translate into a victory. But that was notwithstanding, let's just say it's a plausible uh, potential scenario now. In that situation, in 2015 and 2017, the Tory attack line was coalition of chaos. You'll get the SNP propping up 
um, a weak Labour government and pulling its strings. And that was that was in 2015 really devastatingly effective. Actually, people forget the role of English nationalism in 2015 and the fear of Scottish nationalism and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what they're going to throw in is coalition of chaos, which is SNP plus left wing backbenchers, and they're going to—that's what they'll go for. And I think the Starmer project are going to look ahead to that and think about booting out left wing MPs in advance. And I think Nick Brown, the former chief whip, who was booted out, who had a broad church, I would say, approach to the Labour Party, replaced is Alan Campbell, isn't it? Alan Campbell, Alan Campbell, the current chief whip, is a is is a kind of flog the left type. And I think some socialist campaign group MPs suspect they're going to try and find excuses to just take yeah. the whip off MP one by one. But even in the advent of a hung parliament where we might think, well, actually, the campaign group there could have quite the left wing MPs can have quite a lot of leverage in that situation and kind of get through a lot of our policies, not least the 10 pledges Keir Starmer promised. Um, but they will think ahead and go, if, if we'll just say you'll lose the whip if you vote against this, even if they're allowed to stand there. What do you think? Am I, I just don't think it's a scenario people have discussed. What do you think, Paul? Do you think there's something in what I'm saying, basically? Um, I think that the Labour right are capable of any kind of level of fantasy about what they'd like to do to the Labour left. You know, I, I think people in focus group often say it, this looks like two parties. And, and the more, the further down the road we go after Jeremy, the more it does actually look like two parties. I mean, if we ever get PR... Uh, which I hope we do, uh, would I want to be on a, an electoral list drawn up by David Evans? No, because I won't be on it. I'll be at the bottom of it. Uh, so we, are, we we on the left who are thinking in terms of decades ahead have to think about, the, I think we will get constitutional reform and PR. But in the here and now, um, the, the, there's a very clear thing to say to any Labour person who starts briefing that they're going to get rid of Zara Sultana and Nadia Whittam, et cetera. And that is there's plenty of us who would, you know, would not stand for that uh, and would probably be purged with them. And we're quite capable of um, mounting, you know, if, if they create a new party, they need to see, uh, understand that new party will be quite effective um, in the short term. And they need to have a little bit of, in, in, a little bit of imagination about where they think that new party might stand uh, against them. Because I don't think it should stand everywhere. It, should have a, it would have a, 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 a kind of, you know, a united front with Labour, hopefully, at the polls, as I hope the Greens will. At the next election, but no, and I think to all the right-wing fantasies about purging left completely, what you need to remind them of is we won nearly every vote of the members at conference, and um, you will not. I mean, the, two years ago to the day, we were all out on the stump. I was out on the stump in in Birmingham uh, for Richard Burden uh, MP who got slaughtered, and honestly, there were literally hundreds of people from all over Britain coming to to campaign for an MP they'd never met, they'd never seen in the pissing rain. Do you think that that will ever happen again if you spend the next two years at war with the Socialist Campaign Group? I hope that people in Starmer's office or anybody else in the Labour HQ listening to it answers that very firmly no, and that they should stop thinking about it. Oh, Paul, honestly, give me painful flashbacks to the day that... uh... 2019 general election i still oh erased that campaign from my head but yes we were all out on the stump michael what do you think that that probably what do you think about that proposition do you think that's something the left should be cognizant of that actually they're going to think ahead to the general election campaign and just think we, we're going to kick out the left to neutralize that attack line yeah i mean i think it's very very plausible i mean i, I as i say I, I, for the same reason that paul does i think that will probably backfire because I, you know, you need to assemble a coalition to win a general election, and they're looking at a very small coalition if they keep behaving in the way that they do. I think Keir Starmer is going to struggle to win over 
win back the Red Wall because of his Remain associations. If he now pisses off everyone who's young and lives in a city, then, you know, it's looking pretty disastrous for the guy. So hopefully he doesn't kick out the socialist campaign group, but I wouldn't put it past him. Also because there are so many people at the top of the Labour Party who think that Keir Starmer is a dud and they just want this excuse to, you know, end any sort of left power within the party forever and then replace him with a more, you know, charismatic right winger. Who so, would that be, you know, though? Can you name any? Well, I mean, well, it's it's all about West Street, isn't it? Apparently, the level of talent at the top of the Labour Party is a disaster. I mean, they're, they're it's just like it's one wooden person who. You know what? Just, I, I, all I the, all the challenges to Keir Starmer would be just as wooden as him. Bridget Phillipson, Rachel Reeves. It's sort of like they they can't respond as humans to questions. So I do it, think about it. it, it is, know, the dearth of talent is a worry. I mean, if you look back at the Labour Party, I mean, I'd say it's it's not just confined to the, the Labour Party, this problem, but the, in the 1940s, you had these titans from left to right. You had Ernie Bevan, you had Nye Bevan, you had Herbert Morrison. In the 70s, you had Barbara Castle, you had obviously Tony Benn, uh, you, you had, you know, you had, throughout this period before that, you had Crosland, you, you, you had, you know, whatever people think of like Shirley Williams or David Owen, who defected the SDP. They, all of these people were substantial people. They were orators. They had hinterlands. They wrote books. They had particular ideological views. And you look at a lot of the Labour Party today, and it, they're just mid-manager, middle managers. They, 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 they lack charisma. They lack kind of root, they, any moorings in anything, ideologically, communities. I mean, it's true, isn't it, Paul? I mean, I should, it, no, I, I, you know, I, although I'm no fan of either of these politicians, I wouldn't say that about either Rachel Reeves or West Streeting. Uh, you know, because because what they have, what they are, I, I think both of them are in a way kind of old Labour. Remember, Rachel Reeves has written this kind of book about you know about kind of Labour's right wing tradition. Uh, and Streeting, you know, if you think about signifiers like you know, he's a big advocate of the uh, black cab uh, drivers in London. Uh, you know, uh, so so he he's has got a lot of black cabs in his constituency, isn't he? I mean, that's kind of black yeah, cab but it's, it's, it's the Essex thing. It's it's the it's the white flight. It's it's that's you know, that's it's. It's he's, that a, he's a Blairite, but I've known no, where no, no. for a long time. If Let, he's not a Blairite, no one's a Blairite. No, no, but what I'm saying is that you, you said they're all technocratic managers. I actually don't think some of them lack hinterlands, but what what is true is that what they can't do, none of them can do populism. And the Tories haven't just got um, Johnson to do populism. There's a lot of different voices that can do populism and what it means is about speaking as normal people speak. And it means actually accepting some of the, as it were, worries and agendas and concerns that people have and coming out from the heart with what your progressive alternative to them is. I, I, get, I mean, I, let me just say, how many times do you hear a Labour MP saying, no, no, no my, my, my constituents are not racist. They're the salt of the earth. And, and in other words, it, it makes it impossible for them to actually argue with the racists. Uh, I mean, on the on the doorstep. I I just think we need some just class just, fighters. Just just quick because I, I know we've overrun and yeah, you're both sorry. extreme. You no, know, it's not your fault. It's my fault. But you're you're just you're just both very busy people. So I'm just worried about that. But and it's a Sunday and you've got better things than you probably. But Rachel Reeves, just quickly on Rachel Reeves because I mean, someone hit. We've I'll go through the super chats at the end. But someone who was not a fan. I'm just scrolling through the different super chats. Uh, you know, asked about having a shadow chancellor. How can Labour, with a fiscally conservative shadow chancellor, tackle the climate crisis that requires high spending and ending capitalism? And that should be pointed out, as Paul said, that Labour have committed to £28 billion a year to a Green New Deal um, of a certain description. But I suppose I, I'm asking, are you on the Rachel Reeves train? I just want to be blunt about it because... No, no. no I know, I'm just checking. Sorry. No, in, no, no, because, what, what it just saying? seems no. like there's a kind of... 
Rachel Reeves is someone who was very much on the right of the Labour Party. I think she still is, but on she was on the select committee that investigated the collapse of Carillion. Some people think that had a big impact on, and it did have a big impact on her. Um, but I think there's there's a kind of thing going around that actually Rachel Rees has actually moved very substantially, and it almost seems like there's a bit of groundwork being laid for her. No, to no, I, look, I don't think she's moved substantially to the left. But what the, the questioner I saw it pop up said fiscally conservative. I, I don't think Reeves' shadow tre- treasury team is any more fiscally conservative on what they'll do in power mm-hmm. than the McDonald because they've both got essentially the same rule. And James Meadway, the, the ex McDonald. Uh, uh, advisors said this. They've both got essentially the same rule. Uh, and the Tories have actually adopted that rule. It's, a, it's kind of watered down golden rule. Where the fiscal conservatism is, is small f, small c, is towards Labour pledges now. So everybody in the shadow cabinet who wants to be able to say, I need to be able to promise X on defence or X on local government, they can't do it. Because until now, uh, Reeves and v- Bridget Phillipson have not let anybody pledge anything except themselves uh so but i think that will have to change towards uh towards the election but coming back to the to main point it's a more systemic thing we need politicians who, who, who are able to turn up in places and do what jeremy did inspire them i mean looking back in those even in the 2019 election which is a disaster that jeremy was was at times just able even then to inspire people but 2017 is the is the for me the template and if i was a professional politician i'd be asking myself why have we not got enough people who can do what the left seem to be able to do just lastly then before we wrap up is boris johnson going to lead the conservatives into the next election what do you think michael i think probably not i, I think, think he not. he, I he has not. he has shown himself to be and especially i think because people recognize that he does he does bring out keir starmer's only strength which is a bit of a risk as a party to go into an election when you've got quite a weak opponent, but your sort of the, the, moral one of the character thing. gives them at least something to, to talk about to the electorate. The, there's one other thing, and it's utterly logistical. He's burning all his advisors. All Johnson's operation is are unelected advisors like David Frost, like Allegra, like um, Dominic mm. Cummings. And one, as you burn them, you do end up with just a bunch of ex-Sun journalists and uh, basically public school 25-year-olds. And th- where, is, where, where does he get the rest of them from? Dan Rosenfield, head, chief of staff, is like, he's not a Tory, as far as I know. You know, he, he, he's, he's friends with people I know on the left. Um, he has no politics because he's a civil servant. But he's not, you know, he's not going to sit there with a kind of Machiavellian calculus working out how to, it's not his job, you know, to, to, to do that. So Johnson is down to the absolute minimum of Johnsonism. And that, you know, it, it's his wife and him. Uh, and, ju- and, and not just many like, more, ju- more people. Just very lastly, do you think Labour should be more worried about Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss? Or Pretty Patel. Ooh, happy not, Christmas, everyone. There's so many racists in this country who have turned against Patel for not sinking the, the, the migrant boat. I think I would be or I would be the most worried about Truss. Yes. Michael. Well, I'd, be the, I'd be the most worried about Rishi Sunak just because I think mm. he's the most competent and sort of charismatic politician. Thank you to both of you for joining us on a Sunday. We've covered a lot of ground there. Um, as ever, go and I mean you probably all followed both of them on social media and watch Navarra, but just throw that in anyway. Um <laughs> lots of love to both of you. Um stay well and I will see you both very soon. Cheers. See you guys. See you guys. See ya. 
Oh, great show. Uh, covered a huge amount of ground there. Uh, fantastic guests, as per usual. Um, on the Yeah, so on the video, just to quickly explain, just to apologise, I have been trying to finish this book, which I was commissioned to write by Penguin seven years ago. Quite a lot has changed with us. It's called The Alternative and How We Build It. Um, it's quite difficult, as it turns out, writing a book in a period of tumult. Because when I was commissioned to write that book, Jeremy Corbyn was a very little-known backbencher. Donald Trump was a slightly ridiculous reality TV star. Brexit was an acronym which was, frankly, quite obscure. Most people, if you stopped on the street, wouldn't know what you were talking about. Um, it was, yeah, obviously, COVID is not something people were even remotely aware of. It was a completely different universe. So, thankfully, actually, I, even though I did finish... Um, a draft in 2019. It's a good job we didn't publish it then because quite a few things have changed since then. But what I'm trying to say is I've been trying to focus my energy on finishing that, which is why we've not been as active as we should be. I'm going to Barcelona for the whole of January to force, if I'm allowed to, uh, to finish the book. But we're going to keep doing the shows and I'm going to get just kind of get a bit, just some more interviews so we're actually doing more content because we've not been doing as much as we should have for that reason. But as when I finish the book, we'll We'll be back properly, I promise you. Um, in the meanwhile, we do have lots of documentaries in the pipeline because of your support. Um, that's why we did uh, all the documentaries which we've obviously uh, been putting out there, not least. I know a lot of you enjoyed uh, Tory Party Conference, but I was really proud, for example, that we do documentaries about a working class community in Nine Elms where property developers are waging war on the working class giving a, a, a platform to working class voices who aren't otherwise heard. And you made all that possible on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. Let me just go through the super chats. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you to Monica Reidman, Hassan Mahmood, uh, Matt Simpson, Dan Brooks, who actually enjoys the conga, really. I just suggested people that number 10 might be doing the conga. Who knows what they're up to in there? I don't want to say because libel lawyers are quite stringent in Britain. Matt Simpson, we love you, Owen. <laughs> love you too, Matt. Uh, Tad Campwell. Uh, geriatric millennial Owen, I'll buy you a Zimmer frame when you turn 40. It's still three years ago, but uh, three years to go, but people keep pointing out on social media, I, you're approaching 40 or whatever. Matthew Carberry, the Tories' absolute poverty of honesty and compassion should be a win for Labour, but Starmer offers nothing. Radical alternatives are essential. Now, well, of course, completely agree. And actually, look, it does depend on what happens with Johnson and who replaces him if that does happen. Because what Johnson, Johnsonism has done, if giving him an ism isn't giving him more intellectual and political weight than he deserves, um, is raid some of the interventionist policies and kind of torrify it uh, that are is associated more with Labour than certainly the Cameron Osborne approach to slash and burn economics. And they've used that to shore up an electoral coalition of disproportionately older white homeowners in ex-industrial areas who are not economically right-wing at all and are not free market libertarians. Very few people in the British electorate are authentic free market libertarians. Um, and that's put uh, a kind of more centrist incarnation of Labour in a difficult position, because if you have a Conservative Party willing to turn on the taps in quite a cynical way, diverted, obviously, to specific parts of the electorate, rather than, uh, which... which, which have shifted to the Tories rather than, I don't know, younger insecure workers who are private renters who are overwhelmingly not voting for the Conservative Party. So, you know, and this is often a misnomer about left-wing economics. It's, it's not about the size of the state. It's what you, whose class interest do you use the state to support? 
And obviously the Tories are doing that to support a particular section of the electorate in order to shore up their um, new electoral coalition. Um, but if Labour doesn't offer a genuine radical alternative um, on the economy, then actually they're not saying very much. And that's, you know, part of the problem, which is that faction associated with the Labour right who now surround Keir Starmer, just inarguably, you know, they lost the leadership contest in 2015 against Corbyn, uh, which if you look back, obviously was seen as completely ludicrous at the time. Corbyn started with 201 odds to become le Labour leader because they ran out of ideas. They didn't actually have anything coherent or unique to say. Um, and that's, you know, Corbyn, the radical left of the Labour Party were the last consistent social democrat standing. They were offering traditional social democratic policies that the Labour establishment had given up. Now, if in this particular era, unlike the 70s, the 90s, which was a period of a financial bubble giving unsustainable, as it turned out, economic growth, but the proceeds of which could be used to invest in public services in a way that accorded more with Labour values. That's what New Labour offered. And that's, that's at the moment, there's just no cloak coherent economic offering at all. There's just kind of piecemeal policies like the welcome £28 billion a year in the Green New Deal. So obviously, that's what Labour has to focus on doing now. They have to offer a coherent economic alternative that is distinct from what the Tories are doing. And that just that just isn't there. It just it clearly isn't. They don't have totemic policies like New Labour did, which signified wider values like the minimum wage, for example, or a or, or a windfall tax and privatized utilities. It's just not there. And that is, you know, remains a problem for Starmerism because they're ahead in the polls now simply because if they weren't ahead in the polls now, we might as well just give up on politics forever. What does a government need to do to destroy its polling lead? Well, as it turns out, we've found what the answer to that question is. Kieran Buckley, what's more likely to happen if Boris is removed as PM? He steps down or Tory MPs kick out. I hope they kick him out. Well, I guess it depends really, doesn't it? I mean, I don't, it depends on what you think of the psychology of Boris Johnson. Many of us read Dominic Cummings' meandering thoughts on this because obviously he knows Boris Johnson well, but obviously he has a personal grudge against Boris Johnson. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I suppose it could get to the point where there's such a head of steam that so many Tory MPs put, you know, put letters in that his position just becomes untenable and he's forced to be removed. There could be the stalking horse. I mean, look what happened with how Thatcher was removed. You had a stalking horse um, and that opened up, a eventually opened up a contest. And even though Margaret Thatcher won on the first round, it wasn't by, it was by humiliatingly low amount. So she withdrew from that race. That could be the same with Boris Johnson. It would be amusing if that happened soon because it means he will be a shorter-lived Prime Minister than Theresa May. Dan Brooks, Sir Saintly Starmer is like Neil Kinnock, determined to keep the Conservative government in power. It's always saddened me. I mean, that's the thing. He's not. He's not trying to do that. I don't think anyone thinks Keir Starmer is trying to be a failed Labour leader and not win an election. He is. The question is, is he, A, on his own terms, winning over the people who voted Tory in 2019? The electoral evidence hit before this scandal was no. And is he alienating some of those existing voters, for example, younger people and minorities? And the evidence from the polling and by-election suggested, yes, he was doing that. Now, will that change because of this scandal in a sustainable way? That's the question mark, isn't it? Uh, Tad Cantwell, with the drop of 50 seats next parliament, I wonder if Northern Ireland MPs will have bigger, big, bigger influence as they still have six seats. Uh, Owen and Michael, when did you become Marxist? Oh, because Paul called us both all three of us Marxists. I think some might put a question mark above all of us as Marxists. 
I'd regard myself as Marxist influence. We settle on that. David Barrater, the government has become a dumpster file doing a cross between House of Cards and a bad carry-on film. Uh, what do you think Labour should be doing now? Again, offering a coherent alternative, not waging war against its own party, having a genuine broad church in the shadow cabinet, uh, um, having a radical economic policies, which, um, you know, I like the Labour Together report, if people look up the Labour Together report, it was a cross-party... Uh, so it was across the different factions of the Labour Party came together and there was an agreement that a radical alternative on the economy could win back Labour voters who Labour lost in 2019 and keep the existing remaining voters on side. Craig Berkey, I hate Starmer so much. We need to split the PLP. Who cares about a Christmas party? Get worked up over poverty, not Westminster naval gazing. Well, I mean, I don't think a split in the Parliamentary Labour Party is, is viable because for lots of reasons, not least our electoral system, means any new left party is likely to struggle in in winning any seats. That's just people make a calculation. I don't like where Labour's going at the moment, but I want the Tories out and therefore they vote Labour even if they're fed up. That's what people like me do. So I'll just be honest about that. Um in terms of getting worked up over this rather than poverty, well, look, I agree. Look, I mean, people like me spend all our time, contrary to some of the claims of Starmer Ultras on Twitter, talking about the injustices caused by Toryism and by Tory ideology, not least poverty, not least the housing crisis, the insecurity that afflicts not least younger people. Um, you know, the terrible injustices that people suffer on a daily basis in a wealthy society with all the resources uh, to end every injustice. Not like that, but within a pretty good period of time. But because of a society rigged in favour of wealthy elites, there is a choice not to do that. Um, I just think the reason this scandal has cut through is people have snapped after two years of misery um, and the sacrifices they've made. And when they feel that sense of one rule for those at the top of society who actually create and enforce the rules and one rule for everybody else, it just causes so much rage because people have so everyone's got their stories of sacrifice haven't they whether it be the eight million people who live alone who had huge periods of solitude whether people who watched their relatives buried on zoom whether it be people who couldn't hold the hands of their dying loved ones uh whether it be the economic suffering people have have gone through you know mental health you know i mean there's all sorts you know people who've suffered from drug addiction who've you know in lockdown that was not a good experience for people with drug addiction there's so many millions of different you know, different stories that people have, you know, of pain and suffering. And the idea that they were just parting at number 10, it, it just catches a certain general sense of injustice that is very difficult to diffuse. And I think, you know, the corruption scandal sums that up as well. People think this is a, you know, it, it sums up a government and a society which is rigged in favour of some rather than others. Um, and thank you to Mark Dimack. Right, that's enough for me because we've done a long show, but I think, and I can see my broadband is struggling. We should have nationalised it. Should have voted Labour in 2019, everyone. Uh, so I'm going to finish here just to say thank you to everyone for watching the show, for your support. We do, I will get on to doing more interviews, even though I do need to finish my book, which is devastatingly overdue. Um, but we will have lots of documentaries and shows uh, coming up. Uh, enjoy your Sundays, everyone. Do listen to the subscribe to the podcast. Sorry, I'll get told off if I don't tell you to do that. Uh, but lots of love. Thanks to the guests and see you soon.
thanks for listening everyone i hope you found that informative educational uh, interesting and i certainly did uh, do support us on patreon to keep the show on the road uh, forward slash owen jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and i look forward to speaking to you soon imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.